So the Talmud tells us in three places very similar stories, kind of a very similar pattern. And incidentally, or maybe it's not so incidental, these stories appear within seven pages of Talmud. Talmud is comprised of, in totality, about 2,711 pages. Uh, and seven of, and, and, you know, within seven pages, you find three stories that parallel each other, three fascinating stories, but they also teach us something very kind of unique in Jewish life. And I'll pre- preface this by saying, if you look at Jewish literature uh, and Jewish thought and Jewish philosophy, certainly traditional philosophy, uh, the end game of life as a Jew, like the pinnacle the heights, the acme of achievement for a Jew has a name that's called Olam Haba, which is mistranslated as the afterlife, or it's more, pro- more properly tra- translated as the next world. But it refers to spiritual achievement here that is recognized in some other world. Uh, and the goal and the yearning and the hope of every Jew has always been to be part of that select fraternity that does good here, achieves greatness and immortality here as manifested by being part of this group that has Olam Abba. Now, typically, the way we accomplish that is by doing mitzvahs, by being kind, by studying Torah, by being generous, by doing you know, as much as we can to do tikkun olam, to ourselves, to our community, certainly to the world, to the Jewish people, of course. And that's like the assumption that we're walking into this discussion with. The Talmud tells us three stories where the, that entire model is just totally changed. Where in this uh, method of acquiring olam haba, it slipped on its head. And I'll tell you the stories uh, really quickly. Uh, story number one is about... A, a hateful, um, a hateful Caesar. The Talmud does not tell us which Caesar it is, uh, because, and I guess that makes our job harder to try to figure out who it was, because there were so many Caesars they hated the Jews. Uh, it could have been Trajan. He had a tremendously brutal hatred for the Jews. Certainly, could have been Hadrian, as we know. Hadrian went on to slaughter thousands and thousands of Jews. And, uh, according to Jewish and Roman sources, in the hundreds of thousands. It could have been Domitian, certainly could have been Titus or Vespasian. We don't know who it is. Uh, but there's this Caesar that was so fed up with the Jews that he's gathered in his advisors. And he asked them a question. And the question he asked them is, what do you do if you have a wart on your foot? What are you going to do? Are you going to suffer? Or are you going to get it surgically removed? Basically saying, are these Jews are a thorn in my side. What am I going to do? Am I going to suffer the rest of the time? I'll just get rid of them. That's what he proposed. I proposed getting rid of the Jewish people, just destroying them. So I was like, hmm, sounds like a good plan. And then one guy speaks up, and the Talmud tells us his name is um, Ketia ben Shalom. Speaks up and says, no, 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 this is not a good idea. First of all, you'll be killing your own people. What kind of legacy is that? To murder your own people? Number one. Number two, the Jewish people are an eternal nation. You can't get rid of us, no matter what you try. And trust me, everything's been tried. You can't do it. And he quotes a verse. You can't do it. We're, you know, we're, here, we're here for good. 
So the Caesar says, you're right, I can't destroy the people. However, you went against protocol. You spoke up in opposition to the plans of the Caesar. So you know what's going to happen to you? You are going to be summarily executed. They start leading him out to the uh, execution with a lot of pomp like the Romans are wont to do. And he's being led to his execution for standing up for the Jewish people. He's he's a non-Jew. So a lady, a Roman matron from the crowd, she tells him, she screams to him, Katia ben Shalom, you are a ship that is traveling through the channel, but you didn't pay your tax. As if to say, you didn't, you're not Jewish. So you stood up for the Jewish people, but you're not, one of the, you're not a member of the tribe. The Talmud describes that he takes uh, some sort of uh, uh, device, I don't, it's not clear what it is, he circumcises himself, and he says, behold, I paid the tax. <laughs> and they lead him and they execute him. And after they execute him, there's a prophetic voice that starts booming. Katia ben Shalom, you are welcomed into Olam Haba. And the epilogue of the story is that Rabbi Judah the prince, the leader of the Jewish people at, in, the, in the end of the second century, when he heard this story, he started crying. Why? He started crying because he said like this. He lamented. Many people, most people spend their entire lives, multiple years, trying to achieve, achieve immortality. And this guy got it in one hour, with one deed, with one dedication, with one act of martyrdom, he achieved what it takes everyone else years and years to achieve. Thus concludes story number one. Seven, six pages later, we find story number two. Uh, this is a story about a fellow, I'll tell you his name, his name is Rabbi Eliezer ben Durdoi. This guy was Jewish. But he did not actually behave in the way that was fitting a nice young Jewish boy. So much so, the Talmud tells that he was a connoisseur of prostitutes. That's what he did. He just had an insatiable lust. And it says that he, there was no prostitute in the whole region that he didn't patronize. And then once he found out, this is from the Talmud of Orozar, it's page 17. He found out that there's one prostitute all the way far travel, that so expensive she charges an entire bag full of gold coins as her fare. And he says, I'm going to go do this. And he travels many days. He has to cross through many rivers. Finally he gets there and he's with this, this, uh, this woman and there's some sort of uh, emission and she starts giving him a little bit of musar. And you know, you know you hit rock bottom when you start getting rebuked by prostitutes. She tells him like this. You know what she tells him? She says, just like that wind will not go back to its source, so too you will not repent. And he is shaken up. Can you imagine? His whole life, he's, he's, he's there, he's finally achieved what he dreamed, so to speak. And now he just, it's brought crashing down 
with these sharp words of rebuke. So he gets all excited and all emotional and and he starts praying. He goes and he sits between two mountaintops and he says, who's going to pray for me? The mountaintops won't pray for me. The valleys won't pray for me. The rivers won't pray for me. The sun, the stars, and the moons won't pray for me. All the constellations. No one's going to pray for me. The only person that can pray for me is myself. And he puts his head between his knees and he starts crying and he's crying until he dies. And when he dies... A prophetic voice announces Eliezer ben Dudai, he is welcome and ushered into immortality, into Lamaba. And once again, when Rabbi Judah the prince hears the story, he starts crying and he says, Some people spend their entire lives, multiple years, trying to achieve this level of immortality, and some people accomplish it with one short hour. Yes. Well, no, it doesn't seem like that. But it seems because he had this one act of repentance at the end of his life that kind of made him achieve a very high level of, uh, of a spiritual legacy that rivaled the people that spent their entire lives doing that. Oh, okay, because from a relative standpoint, he achieved a lot. I guess he, he, said, no, he said, next time I do it, I won't pay for it. What do you mean? Next time I'm with a woman, I won't pay for it. Well, okay, but but I'm but he I'm saying he fundamentally changed his kind of priorities in life. Yeah. Uh, and that's story number two. In story number three, we this we do know when it happened, also from that same era. Uh, and this is when the Emperor Hadrian in the 130s he went on a campaign to assassinate as many of the Jewish leaders as possible. Uh, So, for example, uh, the great Rabbi Akiva, whose story we know really well, Rabbi Akiva died uh, in a horrific manner where he was tortured with combs of steel. They flayed his skin off. And who did that? That was Hadrian. That was the Emperor Hadrian. Uh, And he had this, uh, this mission against the Jewish people and their leaders specifically, so one of them that he targeted was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. Hanina ben Tradion was teaching Torah to students with a Torah scroll in front of him. And the Romans came and they seized the rabbi and they seized the Torah scroll and they bring him outside. They bring him to the city square. They take the rabbi and they wrap him in the Torah scroll. And they light it on fire. Terrible, un- unimaginable. But in order to augment their suffering, he, the executioner took a ball of wool, dunked it into the water, and placed it upon his heart so that way he wouldn't die to kind of make his suffering longer. But listen, the story is not over yet. So what happens? His students and his family's there and they're suffering unimaginably watching this happen before their very eyes. And the Talmud records conversations that he has, for example, uh, with his daughter. His daughter says to him, Father, I can't believe I get to see you like this. Right? She's absolutely devastated. He tells her like this. Listen to what he tells her. He says, if it was just me, I'd be worried. 
but I'm being burned, I'm being tortured together with the Torah scroll. We know that the Almighty will not accept the shaming of His Torah. So therefore, when the Almighty will uh, get the compensation for the shame of the Torah, He'll also take care of me. That's what He tells His daughter. And then He tells His students, His students are all there. And they're weeping, they're sobbing, this is terrible. Watching their teacher suffering so intensely. And they ask Him, what do you see? What's going on? And He tells them words that are, that are hallowed words in, in the course of the Jewish exile. He tells them, I see the parchment burning, but not the letters. The Torah, the parchment, the parchment's burning. The letters, I see them going up to heaven. It's as if it's kind of uh, uh, emblematic of Jewish suffering. The letters, the Torah itself, the spirit of our nation, what makes us unique, that is inexhaustible. That cannot be stamped out. This whole story is happening, and the executioner is there. And the executioner starts speaking to Ruch Nebuchadnezzar, and he says to him, listen. Oh, sorry, there's one more part of the story. His students tell him, before that, his students tell him, why don't you open up your mouth and kind of swallow in the fire to expedite your death? He tells him like this, which is also a very interesting idea. He tells him, the Almighty gave me a soul. He gave me life. If he wants my soul back, let him come take it. As if to say, our responsibility is to do the best we can with our life so long as we have life. We don't have the decision to cut our own life short, even if it means to hasten our death only in order to minimize the pain. Either way, there's this conversation with the executioner. The executioner tells him, Rabbi, he's moved obviously by what's going on, and he says to him, Rabbi, if I minimize your suffering, do you guarantee me a place in Olam Haba? Do you guarantee me a place in immortality for my soul? And he says to him, yes. He pulls off the wool. Right, instantly almost, the rabbi dies, and then he himself jumps into the inferno as well. And he dies as well. And once again, at the end of the story, there's a prophetic voice that everyone hears. Rabbi Hanina Batradion and the executioner have a portion of the world to come, or are ushered into the world to come. No, he's a Ro- Roman. Okay. And on that, when Rabbi Judah the prince heard that story, he started crying. And he said, some people spend their entire lives trying to achieve Olam Abba, and some people get it in one moment. So that's the, these three stories. Very dramatic, very kind of uh, you know, just raw stories. Um, but this idea, this idea that it's possible for someone to kind of in one second, in one dedication, in one act, to change the course of their lives and to achieve something that is beyond kind of the normal realm of achievement, to do an act of dedication of their lives to God. Now you notice that all three people in these stories, they all ended up dead, right? Yeah, right. Because it was an act of dedicating their entirety of their lives to God. And by doing that, they managed to have a shortcut, so to speak. Normally, to achieve greatness, it's about, it's about 
you know, starting from the bottom up. You work on yourself and you, you know, you, you, you have your bar mitzvah and you start doing mitzvahs and you start learning how to have nice meters, have a nice character. And, and you know, and you, and you get married and there's all the hassles that come with that, the difficulties. You have children and you inspire your community and you infuse your life with a Jewish perspective and you have a relationship with the Almighty. And you learn Torah and you work and, and you fight and you struggle and there's challenges. And the hope is that after a whole life you achieve perfection, greatness, and indeed a place in Alamaba. And then there's this guy. In one instant, with one act, with one dedication, with one hour, they get to the same place. Yes? Okay, so let me, let me ask you this. Go ahead. Can you, is it possible to experience this moment, say, uh, if the guy li- lives to 80 uh, when he's 40? Or does he have to... We're going to get to that. Is it possible to experience this without dying? Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, liked your, I liked your deal about the, the second uh, uh, road I thought was better, you know, having a family. And, oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and, studying Torah. I mean, you know. And I, I, I would liken this, by the way, to someone who... I would liken this someone to, to the path, the two paths to wealth, so to speak, material wealth. You build a business, and you work, and you invest, and you reinvest your, pro- your profits, you know, and eventually you expand, and the business grows, and you have an opportunity, and you take it, and eventually you build wealth. And the other way to build wealth is to just win the lottery. <laughs> right? And you're at the same exact place. And you know what? What happens when someone who spent their entire life you know, since they were 16, like Warren Buffett was delivering newspapers at the age of 10, you know, he achieves fabulous wealth. And then, you know, who moves in next door to his uh, right next door in, uh, uh, in, in California in the beach? Malibu, who buys the house next to the guy who wins the lottery. Isn't that like, <sighs> I spent my whole life to get there and this guy gets there in one instant? That's maybe why Rebbe, Rebbe Judah the Prince started crying. Like, it's just, it's, you know, it's... It's just unfortunate the, the fact that we have to toil so hard to get there and then one guy just cuts the line. You know? mm-hmm. Either way, um, I, I think that we can, you know, the idea, first, first talk about the idea and then kind of how it applies to us. I think the idea is like this. To achieve olam haba, you have to have a certain, so to speak, a spiritual existence. You have to become not merely a physical entity, a physical iteration of yourself, you have to create a spiritual iteration of yourself. I'll explain what I mean by that. We're told that there's 248 positive mitzvahs. 248 mitzvahs where the mind says, thou shall do X, Y, or Z. The Talmud tells us that there's corresponding to that 248 limbs. And the idea being... That when you, every mitzvah you do, you're creating a spiritual limb. You do all the mitzvahs, you create a perfect spiritual kind of replica of yourself. And that is indeed your, your legacy. And thus it takes a long time. It's, you know, you're working, you're struggling, and you're, you're building from the ground up. But there's another way. And that is, well, you don't do limb by limb, brick by brick, slowly building up towards having your entirety of your spiritual existence. Rather, you jump in all at once. You dedicate every single limb of your body, so to speak, to a mitzvah. 
thus instantly creating your spiritual counterpart and thus achieving your legacy. That's the idea. Now, I want to tell you guys some st- more stories. I feel like there's a lot of stories around here. So, uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, uh, who is known in the halachic circles as the undisputed halachic um, authority of most of the 20th century, the latter part of the 20th century. There was a story where he wrote a, an article, an essay, about a particular halachic subject. Some other rabbi, who was many, many, many years his junior, and orders of magnitude a lesser Torah scholar, publicly berated and belittled Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's essay, which is unheard of. If you, like, you know, you don't, you, you, you know, you, you have to have a certain deference for the scholars that are greater than you. Even if you disagree with him, there's a way to disagree with someone respectfully. Certainly in the Torah setting, right? If our study of Torah, if that doesn't leave us with better character, then we're doing it wrong. If someone is purported to be a Torah scholar, and they write, and they write a scathing response against Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, there's something wrong with that. That's the story. A few months later, this same guy, the guy who wrote the article, berating Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, shows up at his door. Knocks at his door. And everyone assumes, all the people that are there, assumes he's coming to apologize, right? That's what you would do. He got the better, you know, he just realized what he did wrong. And he's coming to apologize. He walks in, he sits down with Rabbi Feinstein, Rabbi Moshe, he says to him, I wrote a new book. I wrote a new, a new Torah book. I want to know, can you write a letter of approbation? The people are flabbergasted. Can you imagine? Someone who does the unthinkable. Right? Berating and belittling and castigating and reprimanding Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who's 50 years older than him and 500 times a greater Torah scholar. Doesn't apologize and shows up and says, treat me a favor. People can't believe it. What gall. What gumption. Unbelievable, right? What, is it? what does the rabbi do? Pulls out a pen, pulls out a paper, and writes him a beautiful letter of approbation. It's a great Torah scholar with wonderful character who wrote a wonderful book. I hope you buy it, and now this book will increase in Torah study. And the people are like their eyeballs are popping out of their sockets. And he gives him the letter, and the guy leaves. No word of apology. Unimaginable. So everyone afterwards they go. They go to Rabbi Feinstein. What were you? Do you remember? Yeah. What were you thinking? Why did you give him that? And he says to them like this. He says, the Talmud tells us that it's possible to acquire spiritual immortality in one hour, with one deed, with one dedication of yourself in an act that's just beyond the realm of, of, of normalcy. I thought, says Ramosha Feinstein, maybe this was my opportunity. Maybe this was the chance that I'll have in my life to do an act of kindness, of selflessness, an act that goes against 
the the you know basic decorum. It's who would do that? An act that's to- so totally selfless. Maybe this is my opportunity to achieve this status. And you know, so what, what a story, right? You know. And I was thinking, like, you know, for us, I, this this past week, of course, this is the end of the school year, and uh, all the universities are having their commencement speeches. So they're bringing in all the business leaders or the legal scholars or the medical schools are bringing in the great surgeon generals and doctors and physicians that are contributed to medicine. And in New York City, in Yeshiva University, they got Robert Kraft. Come speak. Who's Robert Kraft? Robert Kraft's a nice Jewish boy from Boston who built a great business and bought the New England Patriots. Yes, the owner of the Patriots. Not from Kraft Foods, the other Kraft, the Kraft everything else. (laughs) Uh, And they brought him in to speak. And he starts speaking. He starts talking about how he grew up Orthodox. He's telling the students. And he went to Yeshiva. And he studied Chumash and Rashi with his father in Shul and Shachris. And after Mincha, they would learn Perkei Avos. And then he tells them a story like this. He tells them a story of how he bought the Patriots. In the 90s, the Patriots were the worst team in the league. He says, the preceding four years before he bought the team, they had won a grand total of 14 games over four years. Three and a half games a season, on average. They were mismanaged. The fans weren't happy with the ownership. The te- no one wanted to be there. It was just a disaster. So he was sitting there with the owner, and he said to him, okay, I'm interested to buy the team. And the team at the time was worth about $112 million. He says, oh, he was willing to pay up. He was a big Patriots fan. He was, he was a season ticket holder. He was willing to pay 115 120 His highest number that he said that he could have possibly considered was 122. And the guy gets there and he says, nothing less than $172 million. $50 million more than the highest estimate of its worth at that time. And that number was just outrageous for any sort of sports franchise at that time. Now, indeed, today it's probably worth $5 billion, so... He made, he, made, he made good on his deal. But he's sitting there, and he says he didn't have the money. He didn't have the plans how he's going to pay for it. But he said sometimes there are opportunities that only come once in a lifetime. There's some iconic franchises, iconic opportunities. The team was going to move to St. Louis. They didn't have support of the, of, of, of the fans, of the local fan base. He said, I'm going to do it. And then he says on Friday, he closed the deal. Shabbos, he went to shul, and it was a snowstorm, and despite the fact that there was a big snowstorm, there were 6,000 fans lining up to buy season tickets. And of course, the rest is history, and he says, of course, in the preceding 37 years, they only had one home playoff game, which they lost. And since then, we've had 21 home playoff games, which we won 18 of them. We went to seven Super Bowls. They won five Super Bowls. And, of course, the rest is history. But he said like this. He said, in business school, they don't teach you to make these deals. 
that sometimes you got to follow your gut. You have an opportunity that's once in a lifetime. You'll never get such an opportunity again. And this is not something you can learn. You have to just seize it when it's there. And I was thinking, how kind of relevant is this to our discussion? In life, you'll have financial opportunities. Once in a lifetime, you've got to seize them. And you also have spiritual opportunities. Once in a lifetime opportunity. And you're not taught about it. No one teaches you in school. You're not going to learn about it in Sunday school how to seize this opportunity, just like you won't learn it in business school, right? You're not going to learn yeshiva. You just have to be there ready to pounce on a deal. Be ready to pounce on the spiritual opportunity that can maybe only come once in a lifetime. The guy comes to you and asks you for an approbation, and it's just unimaginable how someone could have such chutzpah. Such chutzpah? To never apologize? To consider yourself a peer and then to come? Unbelievable. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein teaches us when you have a spiritual opportunity of a lifetime, you don't let it pass. You grab it, you seize it right away. Don't let it, don't let it pass. Maybe this is your opportunity to achieve a spiritual immortality. Go ahead. Okay. You know, consciously doing something in order to achieve spiritual immortality. I mean, a person should want to do it and not be not worried about that. Yeah, well, the result. that's true, but I, it means you, you say it doesn't sound altruistic to do it for reward, so to speak. Well, I really am expecting something. Well, and that's the thing. And you'll get it. It just like we said earlier, it's not something which is tangible. It's a, it's your spiritual self talking here. Your spiritual self is awakened to an opportunity, and it indeed is is uh, is the part of us that is um, eternal. You know, the fact, when, when we die, yeah, we die, our body and soul are separated, but our spirit, our soul lives on. And the soul is a product of the spiritual decisions that we make in this world. And we have an opportunity to achieve a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for our soul. So forget about whether or not we, what our motivations are for what we do that. But either way, it's an opportunity that as spiritual entities, we're always trying to find spiritual opportunities to do mitzvahs, to do kindness, to do good in the community, right? That's the things that we're always looking for as Jews. And, but every once in a while, we realize it's not, it, opportunity comes to our lap, and we have to be ready to seize, there, seize it. I was thinking another example. Um, you know, someone comes over to you and says, hey, uh, I have this, my nephew, you know, he's, he's not cut out for the academia. He needs a job. So you say, oh, who do I know that maybe can hire him? So you think, oh, I'll make a phone call, right? But this is an opportunity to maybe set someone on a good path in life. Who knows if you find them a good job and they have some good mentors and they have someone who kind of helps him get through the vicissitudes of of teenagehood and adolescence. Who knows? Maybe you could set him him kind of on on a path towards, you know, 
eventually going back to school, perhaps, or going to college, getting their GED, and building a family, and, and, and being part of a community. And they're maybe right now kind of on the precipice. Maybe there's kind of this opportunity. Who knows which direction they could go in life. And you make a decision, and that has tremendous ramifications. The point is, is that a small decision sometimes goes a really, really long way, provided that you follow through with it. So back to this picture, past this this, this is why everyone showed this at the beginning. Uh, my grandfather, he was, he was in a, um, he was, he's from Germany, born in Berlin, and in 1934, he went to yeshiva in Poland. Now, it was a transformative experience for him in yeshiva in Poland. Uh, problem was that Poland, in 1938, with the rising vitriol of Hitler, they expelled all their German nationals. So if you were a German national, like my grandfather was, you had to leave Poland. Could you imagine the predicament of being in Poland in 1938 and uh, Hitler's already invaded Czechoslovakia and you have to leave Poland? Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You go back to Germany? Can you imagine going back to... So he went back to Germany. Eventually he managed to get another three-month visa to go back to Poland. He gets a three-month visa to go back to Poland. At the end of the f- three months, he's really... He's out of luck, right? Well, what's he going to do? Where's he going to go? Right before he had to leave Poland, he received a message from Sweden. In Stockholm, there was one Jewish, one observant Jewish family, one family in Stockholm, the Lehman family, and they had young kids who were growing older, and there was no educator for them. So they said, they wanted to know if my grandfather would be willing to come to Stockholm and uh, and be the educator for their, their children. The Almighty sent a, a lifeline to my grandfather. So he went to Stockholm, and he was there from 1938 to 1946 or 47. I think it might have been 47 when he left. Uh, and, of course, he gets there, and a couple of months later, the war breaks out, and the yeshiva that he was part of in Poland is now in flux. They ended up being on the eastern side of the division in Poland. Remember, when Russia and Poland, and Russia and Germany invaded Poland in September 1st, 1939, they essentially divvied up Poland in half. The eastern part went to Russia, and the western part went to Germany. So the yeshiva happened to have been on the eastern side. So they were kind of safe for now. And that wouldn't remain like that. Because, of course, June 22nd, 1941, Operation Barbarossa and the Germans surprise attack against Russia. So the yeshiva was always one step ahead of the Germans. They managed to get visas to Curacao, Curacao in the Dutch islands, in the Caribbean which was a nice place to go. Maybe it's a nice place to go on vacation <laughs> nowadays. But the only reason why they needed it was to get a transport visa. In order to travel at that time, you needed a passport, you needed a transport visa, 
or a transit visa and a destination visa. So they need to get passports to the yeshiva students, they have to get transit uh, visas, and they have to get destination visas. Now, Russia would agree to give a transit visa provided that they had a destination visa. So my grandfather was instrumental in getting Polish passports, even though Poland had ceased to exist, but they were still operating uh, in, in consuls in certain places, so they were able to, uh, to get uh, Polish passports, and Curacao visas. He developed a relationship with the Dutch con- consul in, in, in Stockholm, and he convinced them to just give hundreds and hundreds of visas to Curacao, which he, my grandfather sent to Poland and gave to the yeshiva students. So now armed with Polish passports and Curacao uh, uh, destination visas, Russia agreed to give a transit visa. And the entire yeshiva, and indeed hundreds of other yeshiva students as well, managed to, trans, uh, to, to, to take the trans-Asia, uh, trans-Russian uh, railroad, and to dock themselves in Japan, which indeed there's an entire yeshiva. It's a remarkable story how an entire yeshiva, faculty, and hundreds of students managed to continue yeshiva operations uninterrupted throughout the war, initially in Kobe, Japan, and then in 1941 they moved to Shanghai in the mainland China, but it was obviously occupied by the Japanese. And they were there till 19. 19- 46 or 47, where they came to the United States and back to Israel. And indeed, Chai's grandfather, my wife's uh, grandfather, paternal grandfather, was one of called the Altamirers, which is Yiddish, for the old mirrors. Mir was the name of the town in Poland that the yeshiva was, was in. And he was an old mirror, which means he was in yeshiva in Mir. And he transferred with the yeshiva to Kobe, Japan, and then ultimately to Shanghai, and he ended up in New York in 1947. His family was in Baranovich. Baranovich is in the eastern part of what's now Belarus, which was then Poland. His entire family was slaughtered. In fact, 98% of Baranovich, of the Jews of Baranovich, were slaughtered. And he managed to survive because he was thousands of miles away uh, in, in, in relative safety. Of course, he, went, he moved, moved to New York. He built a family. He had seven kids uh, and 57, I think, grandchildren. One of them is my wife. And thus, multiple, multiple great-grandchildren, etc. But either way, we have a story here where my grandfather is in Sweden. Also, he was in the same yeshiva. He has uh, his... Uh, all his friends and the yeshiva that he's part of, they're now in Japan. And he provided a vital function. Remember, you have a yeshiva in Japan. What are they going to eat? And who's going to pay their rent? So they had benefactors in the United States. There were people in the United States that were spending days and nights raising money from generous Jews to help support these young scholars. Now you have a box full of cash. How are you going to get to Japan? The United States and Japan are at war. Right? There's no postal ties between the two. So they would send all the money to Sweden, which was neutral, to my grandfather. He'd take out, he'd take, he'd repackage it and ship it to Japan. And he was this vital link between the two 
uh, you know, the two, uh, the, the two parts of this, of this exchange. He spent the entire, entirety of the war engaging and trying to save Jews. They formed the Vat Hatzalah. Vat Hatzalah is like a congregation of sal- salvation that, whose job in Stockholm, a few people ended up in Stockholm, we're going to try to understand the save. And he managed to save hundreds of yeshiva students with his visas and passports. But that's not where our story really heads to. Mm-hmm. After the war, my grandfather saw in the newspaper, in the Swedish newspaper, that trains full of refugees arrived in a certain town in Sweden. Just to give you a little insight of kind of the capabilities and uh, ideals of my grandfather. When he was in Sweden, he learned Swedish, wrote and published books in Swedish about Judaism. Just, you know, pretty cool. He wrote his first book when he was 16. Young German in German. And certainly we know many, many books in Hebrew, ultimately, once he got to Israel. But he reads in the newspaper that there's trains full of refugees that arrived in, in Sweden. And what do you say? Maybe there's some young Jews there. Who knows, right? After the war, it's chaos. Can you imagine? The entire war, 83, entire world really, 83 different nations at war. The Jews at the center of it. Who knows? Now what actually happened was that Sweden had a problem. A similar problem that's what's facing the Chinese today. They had a misalignment of males and females in their country. So they agreed to accept 20,000 Jewish girls, survivors of the camps, to accept them to come to Sweden and thus they'll become Swedishized or whatever, whatever they're acculturated and they'll marry young Swedes and then they'll solve their problem. That's what they said, of course, under the guise of being so helpful. They only allowed females. My grandfather gets to the camp and he sees hundreds and hundreds of Jewish girls. He's talking to them, what's going on? And they, they're all obviously traumatized. They all have stories. They're all trying frantically to find maybe some lost friends or cousins or relatives. Grandfather's there he's, and he hears this loud bell, loud ringing bell. He asked them, what, what's, what's this bell? He said, oh, it's lunchtime. Lunchtime? I brought my sandwiches as well. So my grandfather's there looking for a place to wash his hands, to have sandwiches. And the girls asked him, what are you doing? So I'm looking to wash my hands. He said, okay. He washes his hands. He says the bracha, Alitilasya Dayim. He turns around, he makes a mozi lechem in and he sees all the girls are starting to cry. They see a rabbi with a beard who looked like their fathers, their uncles, their teachers back home. They spent four or five years in the camp and they haven't seen this. They all start crying. Young Jews who are just brutally torn away from their people. And they see a rabbi saying a blessing over the food. My grandfather got very emotional. Obviously, who wouldn't? And when he left, on the, on the train home, it was a very long train ride back to where he was living, he, he had a thought, he said, what's to be with these girls? These are girls, some of them probably from very prestigious Jewish families, wonderful girls that they were just in camps. 
for, for, for years, and they're bringing him here to, to assimilate, to who knows what's going to be with him. On the train, he said, the only way to help these girls is if we start a Jewish school. We start a Jewish school. And he was so moved by this inspiration, he got off the train, he telegraphed the people of his Vadat Salah that were involved with saving Jews, and he convened a meeting for that evening. That evening, they get together, he tells them what he saw. He said, the only way to do it is we start a school. You know what the problem with starting a school is? You need a building. You need funds. Who's going who's to be the teachers? Well, what's, what's the plan? Have to start a school. So they said, you know what? If we get a building, we'll do it. We'll figure out how to, how to pay for everything else. Let's get a building. So my grandfather wrote a letter to the Ministry of Interior in Sweden. Explaining the situation. Can you please provide us a building? And he, my grandfather tells, the, tells over that in his head is like, it was just, he was just doing everything he could, but he knew for sure they would say no. And he knew probably it would take a long time to get the, you know, you know bureaucracy, right? He was surprised beyond belief when a couple of days later he gets a letter in the mail that asks the question, how many buildings do you need? <laughs> he responds, we'll start with one. He goes back to the girls and says, who wants to come go to a Jewish school? A few hundred girls join. He had found a local family, the local rabbi in town. It was under their auspices. My grandfather was still a single man. It's under their auspices. And this is a picture of my grandfather teaching some of the girls. He would come in once a week and teach them Chumash, teach them about the parsha. And indeed, though, there were several hundred girls that came through this, this school. It was in a place, it was an island right in the outskirts of Stockholm, a place called Lidingo, beautiful place. Uh, a small, uh, small little city. They found that they had a quiet building. And they managed to rehabilitate hundreds of, of Jewish girls and integrate them back into Jewish life. And indeed, these girls, these living girls as they called themselves, they created a very tight bond. Can you imagine after the war, they had each other, they had people to rely on, they were able to try to achieve a, a certain semblance of normalcy. Indeed, these women, most of them ended up in Israel and building families and developing legacies and having children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And they would still get together. All the time they would get together. Every year. And by the way, my grandfather met my grandmother in that school as well. She was one of the teachers in the school. So to me, this is an example of someone who had an opportunity to change the lives of people, to change the world, really. You change the life of one person, you change the world. You change the life of hundreds of people, most certainly you change the world. And he seized his opportunity. He saw his chance to, to, to achieve immortality, to achieve a legacy in one hour. And he's, on the, he's on the train. Can you imagine on the train? Devastated, I'm sure, with what he saw. Right? The images of, of war, of shock, of trauma before his very eyes. And he's heartbroken. He's shaken. 
His own family, of course, everyone's, you know, his own family perished in the war. And to just mobilize himself and to galvanize it to say, I'm going to do something about that. And he said, I'm not going to wait till I get to the train station, till, till, I, till I get back to Stockholm. I'm getting off the train right now. He got off the train in the middle of the, middle of the trip, he sent telegraphs, and they just, they just did it. And indeed, like the, the legacy of that story is just, to, to me, that this is an example of someone who actually did it. Now, I don't know how the Almighty treats him, and I don't know like, what it, what it, I can't evaluate his spiritual self, but, you know, like, ask yourself, someone who did something like that, took it upon himself to, to do something. You, you, see, you see a problem, do something about it. Don't just sit, you know, and pontificate and say, well, it's really sad. <laughs> I wish I could do something. I don't have a building. No, no, let's see what we can do. People here need help. People are absolutely devastated. Coming out of the ashes. What do we do for them? Let, let's start a school from them, for them. Let's bring them back to Judaism. And he, and he actually did it. Did you call it the torch? Uh-huh. Did you call it the torch center? <laughs> it was just the, and it, there's a book, by the way. There's a book uh, chronicling this. this, uh, this uh, there is like a book. It's an incredible like story. It also goes through a lot of the emotional uh, trauma that these girls had to go, had to kind of exorcise. My grandfather? Yeah. Yes and no. We, we, he, we, the, he does have some accounts that he wrote for himself. Uh, he, everything he did, he did without any pomp or publicity. He didn't want publicity for this. Yeah, I was just wondering. But you know, there are some accounts that, 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 that he has. Uh, we know, for example... Um, that during the war he developed a really bad stomach illness because he was so busy day and night trying to save as many Jews as he could that he didn't eat. The only thing he would eat is chocolate on the run. And he developed a really serious uh, stomach disease. Because, like, he was, you know, can you imagine? Like, to us, it's like, it's unimaginable unimaginable to think of, of what life was like for those people at that time. But he knew he was uniquely positioned to help as many Jews as he could. He tells a story. <laughs> this is it's a really emotional story. He tells a story where uh, I was also after the war and there were uh, Jewish uh, prisoners or, or refugees or displaced people that also arrived to Sweden, uh, but they were all very sick. And they put him in a hospital. And it was Rosh Hashanah. It must have been Rosh Hashanah of 1946 or 1940. It must have been 1946. Um, uh, no, maybe it was 1945. Whatever. Right after the war. You know, these uh, skeletons really had come out of the camp. 60 pounds with tuberculosis and who knows what else they have. They put them in, the, in a hospital to try to maybe revive them back to life. I know... Chai's grandmother survived the war with her sister. And her sister died two, three days after liberation. And it was common. She died to tuberculosis and she just died in her hands. Could you imagine? Unbelievable. So my grandfather goes to this hospital on, on Rosh Hashanah with a chauffeur. And he said he, he's the whole Rosh Hashanah, all he did was go from room to room to blow chauffeur for these poor uh, poor, emaciated bodies and souls. And he said on day two of Rosh Hashanah, 
he went there and there were a lot of people that were there on day one and were already perished on day two by the time he got there. But to me, like this story, of course, it's, it's heart-wrenching. But it really demonstrates the attitude that he had towards trying to capitalize on spiritual opportunities that you see. You know, it's, yeah, I'm sure there were other people as well that could have, you know, could have pulled people off the train proverbially, right? There, there were people, and there were the heroes that did it. And then there were people that said, oh, I'll wait for someone else to do it. Or, I'll, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's fine, you know, or... And then there are people that said, no, I am going to achieve something by saving lives, by building families, by building communities, by saving souls. I'm going to do it. It's my responsibility. And the key, the key is that their inspiration, they didn't wait till he got to the end of the train. He said, I'm going to stop right now. I'm inspired now. I'm going to stop right now and try to do whatever I can. Get off the train. What can I do right now? You know what I can do right now? I can make a telegraph and make it, make it meaningful when I, when I arrive. And you arrive, the only thing you can do to start a school, how do you start a school? Who knows how to start a school? What do you do? Uh, I didn't go to school to learn how to go to school. Uh, to how to open schools? Let's get a building. Well, how do we get a building? I don't know. Let's write a letter. Well, they'll say no for sure. Well, it's not worth the time. Well, let, let's try. We'll see what happens. Maybe they might give us uh, the, uh, divine assistance to make it work. And indeed, we know there's hundreds of girls that went through that schools around, I think, until 1948, when everyone was finally allowed to either go to Israel or go back to the United States. And indeed, it's, it changed the world. There's probably thousands upon thousands of people that are descendants of these girls today that wouldn't be there. There'd be some Swedish kids, Swedish six-footers. That's what they would be. They wouldn't have a Jewish identity. They wouldn't be living in Israel. They wouldn't teach their kids Torah. They wouldn't... They would have, because that's what, that was the intention. That was the intention. Quickly get them off the boat, let them assimilate, they forgot everything. And someone said, no, I'm going to do whatever I can. And I think that we have to really prepare ourselves for, for opportunities. You know, a good businessman is trained to always have their eye out for a good deal. So is that something that's addressed in the Talmud or in the Torah, taking... Initiative? Identifying uh, an opportunity and an, ex- an extraordinary uh, that can be. Well, I, I guess these, sto- these stories are one of the stories that we said about the, the Rabbi Moshe Feinstein would be another. I think certainly the stories about my grandfather uh, would be relevant. But uh, but I, I think I think that the I think that the, the the first thing is we have to be primed for that. We ha- our attitude has to be. I'm always ready to pounce on a good deal in a business. I'm always ready to seize an opportunity. I'll give you guys an example. Uh, I told this to someone recently. You have a relationship or a partnership with someone. And you know what happens in partnerships? There's partnerships, right? What happens to partnerships? They sometimes... The partner that comes with the money gets the experience, and the partner that comes with the experience gets the money. Uh, yes, and uh, but what happens? Yeah, well, that's great. That is great. But what happens when uh, partnerships go bad, or what happens when there's division in a family, 
in a community, God forbid, in an organization. And this happens all the time, right? Partnerships are... You have to have really wonderful character traits to make sure it works. Or relationships that go south. It happens all the time. And then the question is, what are you going to do about it? You know that someone did something wrong to you. And it's hard to give that up. Because you're right, and they're wrong, and they refuse to admit it. And all you have in your heart is pent-up enmity towards that person. And then, you have a chance. Now, this is a chance to forgive them, even though you're right. You know how easy it is to forgive someone when they're right? That's very easy. You know how hard to forget someone when you're right? And to rebuild a broken relationship even though they refuse to see their evil? You know how hard that is? Very hard. But you know what happens when you do that? When you bring peace into this world despite the fact you were wrong? That's an act of dedication. I don't know if it's quite acquiring the whole world in one instance, but that is a quantum leap. That's not a small step in spiritual, towards spiritual greatness. That's a leap, quantum leap towards greatness. Yes? There's something in the Torah that says something that it's better to be uh, kind than right. Well, I'm saying that's obviously implied, right? The, the idea of, of, of being kindness, of walking the way of God, it's, that's, that's repeated eight times in the Torah. Uh, Abraham, how many times was Abraham kind despite the fact that Abraham and, and, and Sodom, right? Sodom and Sodom and Gomorrah. What does Abraham do to try to intercede upon their behalf? They're sinners. Let them die. They stand for everything that Abraham stood against. What does Abraham do? Give them kindness. But Abraham was right and they were wrong. Still, it's an opportunity to do kindness even though you are justified and even though they're supposed to be smitten due to their evil. But it's an opportunity for you to overcome that, to do something great, to achieve a certain level of, 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 of spiritual accomplishment that you can't otherwise do. And then perhaps being eligible for that next place that we were talking about in your previous three stories. Yeah, that's 100%. So, so that, that's my, that's my, I think that to me that's, that's the very the, the poignant uh, takeaway for us is that mm-hmm. You know, we have to treat our spiritual iteration of ourselves the same way we treat our physical iteration. We've got to nurture it. We've got to nourish it. We've got to tend it. It's hungry, just like our body is hungry. We've got to give it Torah. We've got to give it mitzvahs. We've got to give it good deeds. And also be ready, because there's going to be times in our life where we're going to have an opportunity to do something that's just beyond the normal realm, the normal uh, trudging, the normal grind of achieving greatness bit by bit and just jumping all the way ahead of the line. Yes? What was I saying a minute ago? Frustrating. Well, I want to I want to talk with you after class anyway because uh, we have a family situation that is directly applicable to what you're talking. About. But but that's a common example. It's a common example when you know you're right, 
and you know that someone else is wrong. And it's so hard to give that up because you're justified and indeed you are. But it takes tremendous courage to say, I'm right, but I'm going to go ask forgiveness. It's an unbelievable thing if you could do it. I know I'm right. I'm going to say, I'm apologizing for our, for our disagreement, for our fight. I, I really shouldn't have said what I said. I shouldn't have done what I did. Just doing that? And by the way, you'll, you'll, have, you'll have peace because most likely they'll say, well, I wasn't so right either. I shouldn't have said that either. <laughs> That's most likely what you'll, you, what you'll accomplish. But to do that and to kind of give in to be the first one, to, you know when there's a fight between spouses and no one wants to kind of break the silence because they don't want to admit that they're the ones that are responsible? I'm not looking at you. <laughs> What's this? There's nodding here. I see a nod and I see a, a, a nod yes and a nod no. I'm not looking. What did you be saying? But, you know, that, that's the way it is. And, and, and the, question that's, the question that matters to us is who is going to be the one that's going to say, I was wrong. And you know what? Who cares whether or not we're suddenly so justified? Oh, what do you mean? They were wrong, not me. Okay, you know what? They were wrong. Apologize anyhow. Just, just imagine what that does to you, to, to, to your spirituality. So that's my hope. My hope is, is that we take the lesson of great heroes in ancient Jewish history, even though they weren't Jewish necessarily, great heroes in recent Jewish histories, people that are able to do great things and change the world and change the lives of other people and overcome justice and do something good for someone else despite the fact that they don't deserve it and, and, and be, be ready to seize those opportunities and to pounce upon them because these are very rare and you, you have to cherish uh, every one that you get. I remember my question. Okay, good. <laughs> I've been going to Chabad for many years, and, and we talk a lot about every physical thing you do has a spiritual component. And so today I was kind of thinking of, uh, I don't know if you know about Maslow, Abraham Maslow, yes. hierarchy of needs. Yes, and, 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 a spiritual hierarchy of needs, is that what you're saying? You know, he talks about, you know, first give me my physical, you know, then I'll go Shelter and food, right. Yeah, I mean, give me, you know, and I'm thinking... So that's so what I what I would say. To, so you're asking about about kind of Maslow's uh, hierarchy. Yeah. I would say that there's two hierarchies. It means he lumps the spiritual into the same hierarchy. I'll say there's a hierarchy for your body and there's a hierarchy for your soul. And I'll tell you why why I say that. In Jewish, uh, in Jewish literature, we're told, uh, everyone who's thirsty, go drink water. But when we're talking about water, we're only referring to Torah. And the idea being is that in our spiritual Maslow's hierarchy, there's water. Our soul needs water. Our soul needs food. And the water is Torah. And the food perhaps are mitzvahs. And I'll tell you what Rabbi Kiva says. Rabbi Kiva compares Torah to, to oxygen, which, by the way, does not appear on Maslow's list of hierarchies. But we need oxygen, right? You can't survive four hours or four minutes without oxygen. Maybe four. I, I read somewhere that he put love 
and, and, and the basic need. I don't know if that's true or not. Well, um, I think people need to feel a sense of, of companionship, of having a relationship with other humans. We go nuts if we're in isolation. But either way, like this idea of our needs, our physical needs is what our body needs, and our spiritual needs are what are our soul needs, and that also has an agenda and priorities. That's a very interesting takeaway. But either way, this idea of having mirror kind of selves, our spiritual self and our, and our physical self, and being ready to it. To, to, to pounce upon once and life's opportunities, the Patriots will be for sale once every hundred years. Let's go buy it. Let's change the world. Thanks a lot, guys, and have a great Shabbos. Thank you.